This is the podcast for Indelible, a documentary in progress for the week of May 28, 2016. I have learned more detail about the youth correctional facilities in California in the 1950s and 1960s, where Carl Harp was a ward beginning in 1963 at the age of 14. The charges which resulted in his internment were related to auto theft. At the time, Carl was living in Traver, California, and the facility was Preston School of Industry in Ione, California. It was part of the California Youth Authority, or the CYA. The CYA became a prototype for social control when it was founded in 1949, a year after the American Law Institute proposed a model for the creation of a quote-unquote agency for youth. Later in 1953, J. Edgar Hoover, then the director of the FBI, issued a memorandum to law enforcement, strongly encouraging mechanisms be set in place to control young baby boomers who he inexplicably felt were likely to become delinquents. He intended to make use of the new infusion of funds from the defense budgets after World War II, which had created many youth correctional facilities and adult correctional facilities between the years of 1944 through 1955. This model for youth correctional facilities in California included a quote-unquote diagnostic center where young wards like Carl underwent character and background assessment. Depending on the outcome of that assessment, the wards were placed in behavior modification programs. These programs were touted as being for the good of the ward, but as it turned out, they really only served the state, using the wards as low-cost labor. In an article in the Harvard Crimson from 1971, it described these boys as being exploited in all cases, as the skills or experiences had little therapeutic or vocational effects, and did not take into account the environments they would be returning to once they completed their sentence. If you create a map of Carl's life experience in California before his arrest as or before his arrest for the sniper charges, it's a fairly simple diagram. He lived in Traver, California. He was in poverty. He was involved in petty robbery and car theft, sometimes just for joyriding. The area of California where he was living was agricultural. It was infused with Mexican Mafia, the Nuestra family, and the Aryan Brotherhood. He applied for his social security number in Paso Robles, California, just east of Los Angeles after he completed his time in the youth correctional facility and after the mercenary work, which ended at age 18. So uh, he applied for his 
social security number at age 18, and this was two years later than the age most teens apply, especially poor teens who want to work as soon as possible, which is um, age 16. The youth correctional facility in Paso Robles was the first youth correctional facility to be created under these new initiatives. Again, Carl lived in this city according to his social security application. In 1955, a young black teen from Chicago named George Jackson was also living in Southern California. He too lived in poverty. He too stole cars and participated in petty theft under $100. This was eight years prior to Carl's placement in Preston. George Jackson was also arrested and placed in a California youth correctional facility, yet his was located in Paso Robles, California, where Carl later lived. George Jackson became a revolutionary leader. Like Carl, he spent time writing while in the youth correctional facility. Like Carl, he was released but then committed other crimes for petty theft and was returned to a youth correctional facility after being arrested in Bakersfield, California, 100 miles north of Los Angeles and 100 miles east of Paso Robles. He was paroled from the youth correctional facility in 1960. George Jackson was arrested a year later in 1961 on trumped-up charges for another petty theft. He pled guilty even though the charges were not accurate. He was told and he believed that he would be given a lesser sentence if he accepted the plea. But instead, he was given the unusual and cruel sentence of one year to life for petty theft, and he was sent to an adult prison. While there, he met a man named W.L. Norton, who was well-versed in communist ideology. Carl had a similar experience in Walla Walla, also being introduced to these concepts by a charismatic inmate. Norton and Jackson organized the Black Gorilla family in 1966, but a few years later, in 1971, Norton was set up and murdered in the prison yard. In 1970, the Black Gorilla family that they organized made an alliance with the Nuestra family to fight the Aryan Brotherhood and the Mexican Mafia. These organizations were well established around the youth correctional facilities in California where Harp and George Jackson were placed. In 1971, George Jackson was killed after he attempted to flee prison with the help of others, including his younger brother. And again, this was soon after his close friend W.L. Norton had been murdered Many of those who were wards in the youth correctional facilities in California had committed crimes in rural or agricultural areas in California. Almost all of them, both white and black, 
were arrested for petty theft or auto theft. There's a history of some wards being recruited for mercenary work while in these facilities, and I've talked about that. But there's also a history of former wards being involved in organized revolutionary activity, or as in the case of Earl Satcher and Theo Smith from Duell Vocational Institute, becoming involved in disrupting the early attempts to form food co-ops. Such disruptions would have been helpful to those who controlled mainstream food distribution. During the 1960s and the 1970s, if you were in a male prison, a male adult prison, you were approached and introduced to communist ideology. Strangely, this was during a time in the U.S. when the mainstream media and the broader culture feared communism irrationally. A program was established in 1956 by Hoover to prosecute people for communist ideologies. He had become increasingly frustrated by Supreme Court decisions that limited the Justice Department's ability to prosecute people for their political opinions. Some of his aides reported that he purposely exaggerated the threat of communism to ensure financial and public support for the FBI. But at the same time, he formalized a covert Dirty Tricks program under the name of Pro, and this program remained in place until after it was revealed to the public in 1971 through the theft of many internal documents stolen from an FBI office in Media, Pennsylvania. That was done by a small group of activists. One of them was a seminary student. Yet at the very same time, prisons informally overseen by Hoover were filled with inmates teaching more naive inmates about communist doctrine. Sometimes these efforts to teach became aggressive and threatening, and sometimes they offered safety. Nevertheless, having a population in prison who espoused communism created the perfect enemy for the mainstream media and law enforcement. They could easily be used to show a fearful public that their efforts were a threatening force to U.S. stability. Yet it was being encouraged and overlooked by U.S. authorities. You have to wonder why. Why was this being encouraged and allowed? Karl Hart both welcomed and then later rejected the communist ideology he encountered. He chose instead social anarchy because it resided outside of dogma. He drew images which described social mechanisms of control in structures like prisons. It was not impersonal to him. He understood the machinations of control. Karl Harp died at the age of 32. George Jackson was 29. Consider who was and is allowed to speak. Consider the words and deeds of those who were silent. And here's something else to consider. 
Recently, I went to a meeting attended by lawmakers and leaders in Washington, in a Washington community, Washington State. I was there to discuss methods to provide permanent housing solutions for homeless, disabled vets. I am focusing on vets because it can provide a proof of concept, an opening for change that is manageable, as there is already a significant supportive infrastructure in place, however flawed. Yet during that meeting, I was told something disturbing. I was told there's an effort underway to create legislation to force vets with PTSD to take meds for their PTSD or they will be denied basic services for food and shelter. This was described as something positive by those who presented it. After learning about the exploitive control of teens in youth correctional facilities and those in adult prisons, such as John Bosch, Carl's former cellmate, where he is not able to view his medical records to see what he was given while in a prison hospital, even though HIPAA laws ensure him this right, I can only imagine what a bad idea it is to have any legislation which forces medication on an individual. It seems to me to be a very slippery slope. And that's all I have for tonight. Good night.